The David Rubenstein Podcast is sponsored by Wells Fargo. Nuveen is an asset manager striving to invest in the futures of Hispanic and Black Americans, and they're working to create products and services focused on generational investing for diverse communities around the country. At Wells Fargo, we're helping our clients forge what's next. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. More than a quarter of a century ago, Ken Burns came into the consciousness of every American with this compelling nine-part series on the Civil War. Since that time, Ken has continued to make an enormous number of documentaries about American history. I share his love of American history, and I've come to know Ken as a friend and also as a supporter. And recently, I sat down with Ken to discuss our mutual interest about this country's history. So, Ken, uh, you are, I assume, now in Walpole, New Hampshire, where you do much, most of your work. Uh, Walpole, New Hampshire is not known as a media center. <laughs> so I'm just curious, how come you happen to do all of your work there? Well, I moved here in 1979, 42 years ago, when I realized that becoming a documentary filmmaker focusing in American history was taking a, a vow of anonymity and poverty. And though my first film was nominated for an Oscar and everyone presumed that I would come back to the city or go to L.A., I stayed here because of the labor-intensive nature of what I do, the fact that it's all grant-funded, philanthropic uh, projects and that they're very time consuming. So I keep my overhead very low here and it's quite beautiful in southern New Hampshire. So I assume you're Walpole, New Hampshire's most famous resident. Oh gosh, I don't think so. You know, I, I always thought that if my great, great, great grandchildren sort of kept their heads low, they might be able to be a member of the, the volunteer fire department. So there's a kind of a different kind of hierarchy here where any notoriety plus 50 cents gets you a cup of coffee. Okay, so let's talk about most recent uh, uh, film that you've had on television, which is a four-part series on Muhammad Ali. Why did you decide to focus on Muhammad Ali? What was your interest in him? Well, he's one of the most compelling figures in all of American history. He certainly intersects with all the major issues of the last half of the 20th century, the role of sports in society, uh, the role of the black athlete in sports, the uh, definitions of black manhood and black masculinity, the civil rights movement, not as a fixed thing, but as a kind of ongoing developing thing. It's a story of politics, of course, of race, the central American question, freedom. Um, it's also about faith and religion and Islam about sex and all of these things uh, because human nature doesn't change or things we're grappling with today. So when you have a larger-than-life mythic figure like Ali, he just, um, he, he sort of lights up page after page of history. He's, he's in a way irresistible and is a way to communicate some pretty complex undertow about not just the U.S. but who we are. How long did it take you to do that series? We said yes to this. Uh, 
in 2013. We began work in 2014. Real earnest production and shooting of, of most of the stuff began in 2016, the year that he died. Um, so you could say that it took eight years or seven years, um, but you know, there's fundraising involved. There are other projects that you're giving your attention to at different times. What we need, though, is that period of time in order to do the deep dive on the research, in order to do the deep dive on the archives, and to be able to come up and say that we think we really got him, or at least that we have materials that show the kind of dynamics and the dimensions, the contradictions, um, the even the controversy, the flaws uh, of a character, and not not have it merely be a resuscitation of conventional wisdom. So when Muhammad Ali, uh, did you initially seek his approval or his family's approval or not? No, um, we never operate that way. We can't operate that way in PBS because it's so completely, you know, we have to have a separation of church and state. Uh, we did have cooperation from family members in that they gave the photographs, uh, they gave us access, we were able to interview two of his ex-wives, we interviewed two of his daughters, his brother, friends, families, hangers-on, scholars, you know, all of that sort of stuff, the kind of triangulation that we want to do. Now, when you see boxers today, professional boxers, they seem awfully bulked up. They have gigantic muscles. Uh, it may be because of uh, stimulants they're taking, or maybe they're better training, but he didn't seem like an overly muscular person. What was his strength as a, as a fighter? Was he was as faster than anybody else? Or what was it that made him such a great boxer? It wasn't because he was so strong, was it? Well, you know, he trained. He, had, he was very, very disciplined most of his life. He usually lost when he hadn't been disciplined. And he did have, you know, great bulk to muscles, but not in the kind of way that we see today. He's so sui generis in every single way, not just personality, but in his style of boxing. He did everything wrong. You know, when somebody throws a punch at you, you're supposed to duck he would lean back, which is supposed to be the recipe for disaster. And fortunately got a good trainer, Angelo Dundee, who realized that he was sui generis and that he would have to just strengthen these things. He moved around, he was very quick, but he, you know, he's an amazing boxer. I made a film on Jack Johnson, the first African-American heavyweight champion um, back in the first decade of the 20th century. And they share similar traits. The difference was, is that uh, Jack Johnson was just for himself, and Muhammad Ali seemed to be for everybody. He seemed to want to carry everybody with him and to love everybody. I mean, I think in the end, David, it's a hard thing to talk about. This is a film about freedom, which is a classic American theme. It's about courage, which is also true not just in the ring, but in the kind of stance, particularly with Vietnam, but also about love. I mean, this guy dies five years ago, 2016, the most beloved and known person on the planet. Something happened from that reviled, uh, hated uh, person refusing the draft uh, to then. And that's, that's a pretty interesting story that in many ways doesn't have anything to do with, with boxing. So let's go back to how you became a documentary filmmaker. Um, everybody who wants to be a documentary filmmaker now wants to be Ken Burns. Um, I don't know who your role model was when you were starting out, but did you grow up and say, I don't want to be in private equity, I don't want to be in hedge funds, things important like that? <laughs> uh, you said, I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. What propelled, propelled you towards that? And where did you grow up? 
I, I grew up uh, the son of an anthropologist and um, a biologist, mother who died very young of cancer, of a 10-year battle of cancer when I was 11. I remember after my mom died, I saw my dad cry for the first time, and he cried at a movie. And I said, that's it, I want to become a movie maker. And that, at that point, that meant Alfred Hitchcock or John Ford or Howard Hawks, big name directors of the 60s. But I ended up going to Hampshire College, a new, brand new experimental school that opened in the fall of 70. I went in the fall of 71 and all of my teachers there were social documentary still photographers and filmmakers who reminded me quite correctly that there is as much if not more drama in what is and what was of any, than anything the human imagination can dream up and often the human imagination dreams up things based on historical fact or the impossibilities of historical stories as, as you know as well. So I emerged a documentary filmmaker and had the kind of Hampshire-inspired chutzpah to dis decide that I would just not go to New York and apprentice. I'd start my own company, Florentine Films. The first film we made, which took five and a half years to make because I looked like I was 12 years old and I was trying to sell people the Brooklyn Bridge on the story of the Brooklyn Bridge, was nominated for an Academy Award. And uh, it was in that space that I moved from Amherst, Massachusetts, where Hampshire was, to uh, New York, and then up here to Walpole, New Hampshire, where all the films have been, if not physically made, then directed from up here. Was it easy to raise money for the <laughs> Brooklyn Bridge? And did people say, you're trying to sell me the Brooklyn Bridge? All the time, David. In fact, and it was the baby face. I mean, I'm 68 now, and I, I actually know that I don't look like I'm 68. And uh, you can imagine what I look like at, at, at 23 and 24 when I was beginning uh, to work on it, 25. Um, so they would say, this child is trying to sell me the Brooklyn Bridge. And for a long while, I had two three-ring binders on my desk, you know, each those three, four-inch wide, big expandable affairs with all the letters of rejection, which I kept for, you know, a decade on my desk just to remind me of just how incredibly hard, and it's still hard uh, to to raise the money to do these things. But the independence is is worth it. The, 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 the idea of being able to present to you a film on Muhammad Ali that I'm not apologizing for. It's a director's cut. And if you don't like it, it's all my fault. You know what I mean? And I don't want to not say, oh, the executive producer wouldn't let me hire this person or this. The budget didn't allow me to do that thing. You know, it's just we get to do it in the time it takes to do it, however long, 10 and a half years for the Vietnam War, six or seven for this one on, on Ali. Um, some of them are the National Parks was a 10 year project. Our sponsor, Wells Fargo, recently spoke to Jose Manaya, CEO of Naveen, about how his company is serving the retirement needs of diverse communities. My parents emigrated here from the Dominican Republic. I grew up in Washington Heights in Inwood. My dad was a cook. My mother was a housekeeper at a hotel. They came here with a dream of having a better life for their kids. They barely had a bank account. The concept of a 401k was not there. We are in a retirement crisis in this country. We have an opportunity to help the Hispanic and African-American communities retire with dignity. If you just looked at the U.S. Latinos, they'd be the fifth largest GDP in the world. Nuveen is an asset manager. Our business is about trust. When I think about generational investing, I think about stability and lower volatility. So we think about the long term. What's interesting about our relationship with Wells Fargo is we share similar goals. At Wells Fargo, we're helping our clients forge what's next. 
So after the Brooklyn Bridge, you did a number of other documentaries, I think another six or so. Yes. Before you decided to do the epic Civil War series, which took how many years to do and how long did it take to uh, get all the work done, the research done, and how long did it take to raise the money for that? You know, well, we were raising the money up until the very, very end. And it's just, it's still, it, it's never easy. It took us five and a half years from the moment I decided to do it, which was Christmas Day, um, 1984, where I f was visiting my father uh, with my brand new daughter and my wife. And I um, just said, I know what my next project is. And he said, what? Uh, I said, the Civil War. He goes, what part? And I said, all of it. He just shook his head and walked out of the room like my idiot son. But, you know, five and a half years later we came out with something which is I'd always felt even as early as the Brooklyn Bridge I said I wasn't interested in excavating the dry dates and facts and events of the past but the only thing that could hold that those shards together the glue that could hold that was an emotional archaeology not sentimentality or nostalgia which is the enemy of good anything um, it's it's the higher emotions our founders thought could be released if people were given a chance to govern themselves and so we're interested in what those higher emotions are that we you know tend to avoid we'd prefer things to be one and one equals two you know, we'd prefer not to talk about the four-letter word the FCC allows me to say when talking about Muhammad Ali love um, and but yet our lives are compelled by the things where one and one equals three not two and, you know the, the art the faith the relationships the love that we have for other people and that's what I pursue in my little tiny niche my little bailiwick uh, all these now nearly 50 years of, of doing this. So people were mesmerized by it and were you shocked at how uh, it kind of transformed uh, culture in many ways and people were talking about it all the time? Did you anticipate that? No, no. In fact, I'd been at with a press tour and they said, Ken, this is terrific, but no one's going to watch it because Stephen Bochco, the great TV guy, had a new police procedural that was a musical called Cop Rocks and nobody would watch this. And then Everybody seemed to watch it, and it had 40 million viewers the first time, and, you know, DVD, blank DVD tapes, uh, not DVD, but uh, cassette tapes were what ran out in Washington, D.C. I got invited to the White House. I was on The Tonight Show, and, you know, it was just it was flabbergasting and what what was really helpful to me david was staying here in in walpole because the pressure also to leave again hollywood presumed that just documentary was a just a step a rung on some career path that would inevitably lead to making feature films and i was saying no i i, I like my day job and and being here and insulated by the the people who are sort of they're I, I think they're proud of what I've done, but it, it it matters what my the content of my character is. Why did you not go the route of becoming the next George Lucas or Steven Spielberg, make an enormous amount of money, and then after you made a lot of money, you can go back to doing what you were doing before? Well, I I don't know. It wasn't for me. I I really like the idea of public broadcasting PBS it's public but it's also that s is not system it's service I like that idea I also think PBS has one foot tentatively in the marketplace and the other proudly out of it lots of what's best about this country is not necessarily in the marketplace which is of course one of the best things in this country as well and so it's not making the other wrong it's just saying that if I'd gone to a premium channel or gone to a streaming service it might have been easier to get the money um, but then they would own it 
I own my films. They would also not permit me 10 and a half years to do the Vietnam. They'd want it in a couple of years. And the kind of corners that would be cut in that process was nothing that I wanted to do. I also was aware that even with the success of this Civil War series, people would come and ask me what I was working on from other places. And then when I'd say baseball, they'd say, oh, great, that'll sell. You know, and then they said, how long is it? And I said, 18 and a half hours, and they would walk away. And then after baseball had an even bigger audience than the Civil War, they'd come to me, what are you doing? And I would say, jazz, and they'd go, long? And I'd go, yeah. they go, no, African-American stuff doesn't sell. And it, you just suddenly realize that sometimes you had to pick these projects, all of them, based on your gut, not on a focus group, not on some marketing panel, but what you wanted to do. So how many projects do you have in the works now? Can you say what some of the ones are? Yeah, yeah. I don't know why people make this stuff secret. I've just locked or finished. We're about to next week mix the first of two episodes on a four-part uh two, two hours on Benjamin Franklin, born the same day as Muhammad Ali and arguably one of the most compelling figures of the 18th century. Uh, I've been editing all last week and all this week. As soon as we're done, we're going to dive into the editing today on a history of the U.S. and the Holocaust, what we knew and what we didn't know, uh, what we did and what we didn't do and what we should have done, done a very complicated story that needs to, to be told. We're doing a history of the buffalo, uh, a sort of uh, it's actually a, a biography of not an animal, but a biography of the people who used the animal, the people who brought that animal to the brink of extinction, and then those very same people who nearly killed it to uh, who brought it back from extinction. It's a parable of de-extinction, I guess you might say. We're doing a massive series on the history of the American Revolution, not just 55 white guys with powdered wigs in Philadelphia, but a very, very complicated story of um, a bottom-up story of people, quarter, uh, a fifth to a quarter of the country remain loyal to Great Britain. And it, this was a civil war. Our civil war was not a civil war. It was a sectional war, north against south. At this point in your career, do you consider yourself a filmmaker, a historian, an educator, or a public figure that's well-known and recognized by everybody? Well, you know, the biggest thing is that I'm a filmmaker, and, and that means I tell stories, and I happen to, the way a painter might choose to work in oil as opposed to watercolors, I choose to work in uh, history, American history, uh, with the exception of the upcoming Leonardo da Vinci. They've all been in, in, in American history. And history is conveniently mostly made up of the word story plus high. And all the other stuff that comes, I'm, I'm pleased that these films live in schools, that they have an educational dimension. I'm pleased that people uh, respect the work, which means that if you know who I am, it means that you've seen a film of mine, and that that means that at least these stories are reaching some group of us. As much as I'd want to reach every single person, um, it's at least exciting. You know, I'm walking in New York City and, uh, you know, a fireman goes by and he says, hey, you're the guy that made the Civil War. Or, you know, somebody walks up to me to complain what I left out of baseball, which I love. Baseball's 18 and a half hours. And people, if they tell you what you left out, I'm not an encyclopedia. I'm not a dictionary, I'm a storyteller. You have to leave stuff out. And if they think I've left something out of 18 and a half hours, that means they didn't find it boring. They just wanted the 59 White Sox that they happened to grow up loving and we didn't have time or room or space uh, to do. So uh, I, I have these conversations with people all the time about who we are and what it means to be an American at lots of levels and lots of different people 
trust us to do, and I want to emphasize us, trust us to tell a complicated and truthful story. And in a time when the truth seems fungible, when we're always accusing the other of fake news, it's important to have at least a space. I think PBS provides that where you can get an accurate, balanced view of what's taken place. It doesn't sugarcoat and at the same time isn't just invested entirely in revisionism. Why should people really want to watch history uh, about things that happened 100 or 200 years ago? What, what relevance is it, uh, would you say? Well, you know, I think it's hugely relevant. History gives you that ability to have a kind of perspective, to see where the precedents are for all of the dangerous things, for example, that we find ourselves in today. There are precedents, and yet there is in its totality, obviously, unprecedented dangers and threats to the United States. And I think it would be incumbent upon Americans who are often blind to their history to understand exactly how their government works, what the Constitution is actually about, what it says, what the nature of our government is. You know, we don't teach civics anymore. And a lot of the reasons we feel like we've lost a cohesion is because we've forgotten the glue that's held us together, not just in the in the patriotic ways, not just in the emotional ways, but in the very functional ways of how you get things done. And that's what civics is. It isn't just 100 senators and 435 representatives and three branches of government. It's how human beings together get things done and compromise and see that there is a shared common good. And so history becomes a way uh, it's a table around which I think we can all have a shared discussion of, of what we want and how we might continue to cohere and how we can let the better angels uh, perhaps reassert themselves. That's, that's what I'm about. And I think people want that. I, I think the divisions are huge and massive and threatening and uh, have exposed the fragility of our institutions, indeed our democracy and our future. But I also think deep down, people, if they're made aware of the fact that they share common everything. I mean, one of the fallacies of the Holocaust is just the myth of race, of, you know, biologically it doesn't exist. You know, we are all the same. And I've, I've said to you before, David, you know, I've made films for more than almost 50 years about the U.S., but I've also made films about us, that is to say the lowercase two-letter plural pronoun. And so I'm, I'm addressing these films to everybody, regardless of their political persuasion or where they come from or their sex or their wealth or their race, whatever it might be. I want to reach everybody to remind them of the us. All of the intimacy of this, plus all the majesty, the complexity, the contradiction, and the um, controversy of the U.S. It's all there. And we don't need to say, oh, we got to limit our history and teach it only this way and teach only the good stuff. It's morning in America again. We need to actually have a rich history that pulls back the camera and reveals all the startling and at times, yes, contradictory and not so pleasant things. Our sponsor, Wells Fargo, recently spoke to Jose Manaya, CEO of Naveen, about how his company is serving the retirement needs of diverse communities. My parents emigrated here from the Dominican Republic. I grew up in Washington Heights in Inwood. My dad was a cook. My mother was a housekeeper at a hotel. They came here with a dream of having a better life for their kids. They barely had a bank account. The concept of a 401k was not there. We are in a retirement crisis in this country. We have an opportunity to help the Hispanic and African-American communities retire with dignity. If you just looked at the U.S. Latinos, they'd be the fifth largest GDP in the world. 
Nuveen is an asset manager. Our business is about trust. When I think about generational investing, I think about stability and lower volatility. So we think about the long term. What's interesting about our relationship with Wells Fargo is we share similar goals. At Wells Fargo, we're helping our clients forge what's next. So uh, many people recognize you because you have a very famous hairdo that I've asked you about before. <laughs> but to some people, they may say, well, Ken, what happened? Where did that hairdo come from and where is it gone? Because right now it seems a little different than what I've seen before. Yeah, it's, get, it's growing out a little bit, David, but COVID, you know, I ended up with hair going back down to my shoulder and I finally realized that one of the things I had to do, I had, I'm a very loyal person and I used to have hair down to my waist in my college and my hippie days before that in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I had it cut off uh, in the summer of 75 and I've gone to the same person, now a grandmother many times over, who was a young gal cutting hair in Amherst, Massachusetts. And I still seek her out and I finally just said to her, you know, COVID's enough of a change that I ought to be able to do something new. So I'm ending up with shorter hair. Tom Brokaw, who's been a mentor as well, when I turned 60 eight years ago, said, you know, time for a big boy haircut. And I said, oh wait, I thought you said 70. And so now I guess, you know, two years okay. short of 70, I'm getting a big boy haircut. Well, Ken, I want to thank you for a very interesting conversation. You may not realize that your dog was in part of the conversation. He, we saw. This is my executive producer. You know what they say in Washington, and I think it applies to filmmaking too. If you want a friend, get a dog. And that's Chester, who I call my executive producer. He's never barked once. And every once in a while, he will pass through. Either he's heard this stuff before, or he's sick of hearing my voice or something. But he's curled up over there and, and, um, and, and is happily snoozing away because I've put him to sleep. Thanks for listening. To hear more of my interviews, you can subscribe and download my podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.